Ziggy all day. <laughs> Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. Finally, each year that I've done this, I forget just how much time it takes to run a writing contest, even when the stories are so short. But finally, here we are. The time has come for the results of the third annual Weird Christmas Flash Fiction Contest. Feels pretty good to say third annual. So just to fill everyone in, this is the third year I've asked for entries for a Flash Fiction Contest. For this one, that means no more than 350 words about anything... Christmassy, winter, holiday-ish, and strange. I announced it over the summer, and I ended up with right around 300 stories. And that's a bit fewer than last year, but somehow last year I think the announcement ended up in a bunch of like informal writing classes and writing groups, especially for folk learning English. And that's awesome. I mean, some of them were really, really good, especially the ones from Japan that I talked about on the show. But this year, the quantity was down, but the quality was up. After I read all of them twice, I had 55 stories that I'd worried and winnowed from the big group, and I had no clue how to go further. That's 55 stories, all of which I would have been happy to have on the show. So I read them all a few more times, then I had to get hardcore. So I had to make some harsh cuts, right? But that's my job. Be brutal. Got it down finally to 48. I was proud. Then I had my wife take a look at them and got it down to about 40? At that point, I was just lost. I didn't want to let anything go, so I did what any self-respecting editor would do. I made a spreadsheet. Seriously, I had no other choice. I arbitrarily put the stories in categories of my own making, like funny mainstream or surreal psychological or surreal horror, and tried to rank them. This way, I thought I'd get you know a couple in each kind, and I'd just pick the best. Problem was, I ended up with 35 categories for 40 stories. And I had to admit what everyone else who works with spreadsheets also has to admit. They're an excuse not to make decisions. So I made one, and that decision was that I would compromise with myself by not trying to get it down to just a dozen stories like I did the last two years. Instead, this year we have 19. So all of this is to say that this year has been the hardest to pick. And not just to pick the stories for the show, but even to pick the winner. I had my wife and a couple friends read them, and I'll give feedback. Unfortunately, none of them exactly agreed with each other. But I think in the end, that's a good thing. All of these are really, really unique. And I think you're going to find something pretty cool in all of them. And for all the folk who submitted a story, I want to say thank you for all the wonderfully creative ideas and all the hard work. And for those that didn't make it on the show, um, it's not because your stories were bad or anything like that at all. In fact, when I'm making decisions, I'm looking for as many varieties of topic and style instead of just saying that, you know, one is better than another one. And the one thing that I really do hate about doing this is turning down stories that I know are really, really good, and I had to turn a lot down. But before we get to the actual stories, I need to say thank you to a bunch of people who helped me put this together this year. About half the authors or so couldn't or didn't want to record their own stories, but I wanted each one to have its own unique voice. So that meant trying to find people willing to record them who would be good for the story and work for free. So first, this is the least of the things that she's done for me that I'm grateful for, but the ever lovely and talented Mrs. Kringle had fun helping out for the first time. She did a a great job, as she does with everything she tries. Then I had a trio of beautiful-voiced folk from work, Lisa, Scott, and Amy, totally didn't take time out of their work schedule to record for me. Just putting that on record in case HR ever, you know, looks into what I do on the show. Then my brother from another mother, or rather buddy from another podcast, James Wynn, helped out, and you'll be hearing more from him in another episode this season. Dustin Perry, he of Ghost Hunters fame and the business of making people's lives better, who I gushed about after the ghost story last time, he was kind enough to read another story for us. So I also want to give a huge thank you to two folk in particular who stepped up at the last minute to help when two of my other readers backed out. One is Sherry Morris, whose story The Lost Not Found won second place the first year I did this. She was nice enough to read one for me on very short notice and did a great job, I might add. And the other is my new best friend. L.W. Salinas, a professional audiobook narrator who saw my post on Twitter and offered to help out. So really, go like follow them both on Twitter. I mean, I'm paying them in exposure, and that sucks. But at least we can try to make some of that exposure count. And last but not least is the ever-steady old man freak boy. I always tell everybody to go listen to his Christmas radio show, and I don't think enough of you do it. 
So I can just tell. But really, if you're into fun Christmas music that's off from the norm, he basically put four of them out this year, like four whole radio shows about Christmas music. So links to that are on the show notes, or just Google the show called, Hey, you kids, get off my lawn. Or if you live in Ithaca, New York, just you know, turn on your radio. But enough for me, because we all want to hear the stories, and the two winners will come at the end, just to give a little bit of suspense. I didn't tell anybody who actually won yet because I'm sinister, but also because it means I could wait until the last minute to choose. In truth, though, it's all up on the show notes right now at weirdchristmas.com. You can also read the full text of these stories and get links to the author's pages and blogs and other writings. So please, if you like these stories, follow up with them. Send them a note, find them on social media, or just be on the lookout for their work in other places. Weirdchristmas.com. That's where it all is, right there in red and green. And just to be clear, all of these, except for the winners at the end, are not in any order of quality. I'm trying to make a you know fun mixtape type thing of stories, uh, not rank them all. So I think that's everything. Okay, so we can finally get started. For the last two years, I started off with a dark story. This time, I want to start with something a little more fun. And this one's read by me and Old Man Freak Boy, and it definitely has my favorite title of any story any year. We're going to start with a tale called One of Santa's Elves Tells What Happened During a Sleigh Ride Over Tunguska, Russia on June 30th, 1908 by Roy Peak. You want details? Give me a damn cigarette. And we can't smoke in here. Whatever. Give me. So, we're testing the new sleigh. New sleigh? Yeah. Flies itself. You know how hard it is to find flying reindeers? Uses human technology and elf magic. Got a light? Anyway, we're over Siberia doing a test run. When round boy goes... Will he let you call him that? Not to his face. But pay attention. So, Big Beardo decides to max the throttle and all the warning lights go off. Sirens blaring, smoke and glitter pouring from the sleigh like a lake. Glitter. Yeah. Elf magic, remember? Glitter, snow light, fairy dust, that kind of crap. This flying sleigh was a prototype. Human tech with elven magic. We're breaking every law of nature here. Who knows what madness was ensuing while Father Fatmus gets a hankering to play speed junkie and puts us both in danger. You think I want to be responsible for the death of a much-loved cultural icon? No matter what a pain in my ass he is. Hell no. I knew we only had a few seconds to abandon Slay. I hit the eject button, and luckily the chutes worked just fine. Remind me to thank Chumley and safety. Well, the two of us floating down while the Slay headed towards the horizon. I screamed at his royal roundness to turn around, but it was too late. There was a flash of light and the loudest noise I've ever heard. Our chutes were knocked around like piñatas. The heat was incredible. My backside felt like I was falling ass first into a furnace. I thought the chutes would fry, but thank Chumley they held. Once we stopped bouncing, I got a good look at the damage. Trees flattened for miles, a huge dust cloud forming in the air, my ears ringing in my skull. That sounds horrible. That's not the worst part. What could be worse than that? The worst part was once we landed, I got a good look at his face. His beard completely burned off. Nothing left but singed stubble. Even his eyebrows were toast. Literally. No, Santa without his beard? Crispy Kringle, indeed. I love the idea of the elves just sitting around talking crap about their boss. It was just a lot of fun. But back when I was trying to categorize the stories, I called this next one Light Horror. I'm not really sure what I meant or if that's exactly right, but I really love how Mrs. Kringle here read it. This seems pretty spot on, and I hope the author thinks so too. This one is called O Tenenbaum by Anika Carpenter. The kid worked hard to persuade her dad that I was the perfect tree. He didn't care for the way I reached my scraggy top branch towards the sky. Hands on hip, he complained. Abby, that tree's an idiot. A show-off. It thinks it's going to draw fancy pictures in the clouds. Immediately after it happened, Abby was all apologies. Her dad pretended like it was an accident. Any father would. Uh, I could have moved my finger quicker, he groaned. You knew where to land the axe. With a hand that wasn't a sticky red mess, he filled his coat pocket with snow and gestured for his precious girl to pack what had once jabbed and shushed in there with it. They left the way they'd come, him hurrying, her crying and waving to me. I could still hear Abby's protest when the pair were out of sight. 
I don't want to leave him, Daddy. Another family will come. He'll be part of someone else's Christmas. I'll never see him again. Such a sweet girl. The very bright blood had left a handy trail for Abby's mother to follow. She was as deft with an axe as her daughter. Good with knots, too, lashing me to the roof of the car like a festive figurehead. Not as cautious, though. Didn't think to hide the secateurs from her brandy-fueled nine-fingered husband. As she slept and dreamt of freckled skin and mistletoe, he snipped the tips of each of my branches and tossed them on a hungry log fire. My tenderest parts hissed, transformed into angry sparks. Overnight, as the fire settled, soft pink buds appeared where the sap should have, soft and warm as bunnies' noses. By Christmas Eve, they were slender fingers wagging along to deck the halls, beckoning for more baubles, more stars, robins, angels. Abby passed the decorations to her dad, who hung them carefully, cautious not to knock any needles from the green shoot that had grown through his bandages, almost strong enough now for him to use the carving knife. So I got this episode out a couple days later than I meant to, but I think we all know how disorganized this time of year can get. And if you don't have long-standing anxiety disorders or genetic mood dysfunction, you'll certainly experience it at this time of year. And that's what our next story is all about. This is Bad Vent by Neris Hucker, read by the author. As the clock chimed twelve on the first night of Advent, she was visited by the ghost of Christmas past. It looked remarkably like her. The spirit spent the night showing her all the ways in which Christmases of her past had gone wrong and how it had all been her fault. Every disappointing gift given, every family argument and conflict, every overcooked turkey. That was bad enough. But then for each night until Christmas, she was tormented by a different ghost. Some were traditional types of ghoul, like the frail old lady who scratched ceaselessly at her windows, begging to be let in. That was the ghost of forgotten relatives. Others were surprisingly modern. The ghost of Christmas spending haunted her mobile phone, which buzzed and binged with every transaction so that she spent the night helplessly watching her funds count down into the red. Some were unsettlingly weird, such as the ghost of Christmas feasting. A bloated, belching mummy wrapped completely in bacon who took a bicycle pump to her belly. The ghost of the overexcited child rubbed catalogue pages into her face, shrieking, I want, I want, until by dawn it became so frenzied it burst into a million messy pieces. A lightless void surrounded her one night, into which she screamed for help without response. That was the ghost of, where are the things I've ordered? Worst of all was a quiet little spirit who merely stared quizzically at her. The ghost of, you know you've forgotten something, but what? And so she arrived at Christmas Day, exhausted, frazzled, completely spent. And yet the day itself was a success. Every gift appreciated, everyone in good humour, and no one noticed the overcooked turkey. All was calm, all was bright. That night she was visited by one more spirit, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. It looked remarkably like her, and she realised. And she said to the spirit, Yes, I know, but I won't do this to myself again next year. And the ghost nodded but it knew she would. The first year I did the story contest, I got a ton of evil Santa stories. Cthulhu Santa, Snake Santa, Devil Santa, you name it. This year, I got a lot of scary tree stories. 
I don't know if people have been cooped up in their homes for so long that they're all just dreaming of a forest or what, but it was definitely a trend. This next one takes our annual obsession with decorating trees in a frighteningly different direction, though. Here is All is Bright by Dan Fields, read by the author. The glow from the open church doors lit the way for the procession of red-cheeked families crunching over snow toward the ancient grove of towering fir trees. Children hopped and capered with pent-up excitement. Quiet adults herded them along with tolerant smiles. It was a night for joy. Peter hadn't been allowed at last year's adoration, and being made to wait inside after services, even with cocoa and ginger snaps, was for babies. He'd begged to help the family decorate their tree this year. Busy deacons fastened the harnesses on those family members chosen for the annual adornment. Uncle Andrew murmured jubilant prayers as Mama, Papa, Peter, and Grandma grasped the pulley ropes and hauled him high overhead to hang on his appointed bow. They'd barely finished when the pastor laid a hand on Mama's shoulder. Papa, Peter, and Grandma gasped in wonder at the surprise. Mama had been chosen for a star. With glad hearts, they raised her past Uncle Andrew and the others to the tree's apex, where she spread her limbs in glorious emulation of Bethlehem's heavenly light. As the congregation raised their voices in song, the cloudy night sky parted, revealing the radiant moon and constellations. Their descending light suffused the humble ornaments, each offered with reverence in the spirit of giving. Mama glowed brightest, even among the dozen souls consecrated for the treetops. Her heat-softened flesh completed its transfiguration to a perfect model of celestial brilliance. Uncle Andrew's halo encircled only his head like the flame of a candle. Even so, in the moment before it dissipated fully into formless illumination, his face displayed an attitude of blessed ecstasy. When the final carol ended, Old and young alike turned eager eyes on the gifts miraculously piled beneath each tree. The pastor paused before the benediction, letting each family reflect in silent gratitude on the season's blessings before they chose one of the quivering, gaily wrapped parcels to open. Peter tugged Papa's coat sleeve, his eye caught by something squirming in gorgeous green and gold-striped paper. He had his heart set on a little sister for Christmas. You know when you're traveling and you stumble into some custom you didn't know was going on and you feel all rude and boorish and American? It's always nice when people are understanding and brush it off. That's that's sort of what this next story is about. I also like it because someone took the Icelandic traditions that Americans are starting to know more about and did something pretty cool. And this one also has some Icelandic words in it. Uh, it was read by my friend Amy, and we had to just do our best with pronunciation, so please be patient here. Otherwise, if you know the Icelandic legend in the Yule Cat, you know that kids all need to wear new clothes on Christmas Day. Or the story explains it clearly enough, though. So here's Holiday Transformations by Devin Ellington. It's not fair, said Julie. I'm not Icelandic. I'm a tourist dumped in this godforsaken place by her boyfriend on Christmas Eve. The large orange and black cat licked a paw. Fair is not the issue, he said in a low, raw voice, flirting with boredom. I am the Yule Cat. You don't wear new clothes on Christmas. I devour you. It's my job, like the postman. Or the Oscar Carl. Is that the man who makes the hot dogs? It's the men who pick up the refuse, the detritus no one wants. That's me, Julie admitted. But where's the peace on earth, goodwill to men? I am a cat, he said, twitching his oversized ears. <laughs> I have goodwill to none. Julie looked around, thinking. You can't outrun me. The Yule Cat's voice was almost kind. I'm not just a cat. I am the Yule Cat. 
They're not kidding when they say looks can kill, Julie muttered. Why, thank you, ma'am. The cat straightened up, placed his paws next to each other, and preened. I didn't mean you, said Julie. I meant the gorgeous swine who talked me into paying our fares here and dumped me. A swikel, the Yule cat nodded. He tilted his head to one side. You know where he is now? With the beautiful Icelandic blonde he dumped me for at the Slibberin, she frowned. It's a better place than he ever took me. It won't hurt when I devour you, said the Yule Cat. You can be me, and I can move on. Does everyone eaten become the cat? Julie asked. He shook his head. You know when you meet the next cat. She nodded, and his teeth ripped through her chest. She was tearing, falling, entering the Yule Cat's body. She was the Yule Cat. A young man's spirit appeared before her. He waved and vanished. She shook herself and stretched. "'reveling in the power of her new muscles. "'She felt the power. "'She turned and padded toward the Slibberin bar. "'She knew Keith wasn't wearing new clothes.'" So, by the way, if you're having fun with the music, the dark, scary piano stuff is by an artist named Mew, M-Y-U-U, who does a ton of things on YouTube. Check him out. And you gotta love Christmas theremin music. I've got a few different artists for that. The links are all up at weirdchristmas.com. Why do the elves work for Santa? It's a ton of labor, and we never hear about the deal they made with the big man that keeps them toiling away. We like to think they probably do it out of the goodness of their hearts, like Santa does, but it's kind of hard to stay that naive forever. Finally, someone's taken the veil from our eyes. Here's Memo from the Jolly Overlords by R.J.K. Lee. Two, row 271. Be advised, meet your daily quota. Miss it again, and your row will be summoned for interrogation and review. Make the workshop proud this season. Crumpling the memo into a ball... Stosh glared at the red overhead display. Quota success pending. As worker A at the head of the conveyor belt, he took the initiative. Worry not, an hour before we clock out, twenty left on the table, three minutes per toy, we can get it done together. Ironic chuckles erupted from his pitiful fellows in their required body suits and hairnets. Stosh shrugged them off as inevitable. Everyone felt the despair. When he called his wife from his cubicle cot last night, she complained that their twins whimpered for more food. They had to do better or their families suffered. Stosh-shaped plastic lumps into plump heads and bodies, then passed the dolls on to the next team members for limbs and accessories. A messenger elf scurried from a hole behind Stosh. Loyal to the overlords, messengers were never ginger-snap nice. The muscled fellow in dirt-smeared green overalls squeezed Stosh's arm, you losers are too bony for my taste. He dropped another twenty plastic lumps onto the table, then returned to the hollowed tunnels to the offices secreted within. The slapping and scratching sounds of climbers were a constant reminder of impatient activity. With lumps in hand, Stosh addressed his team. More from management. Twenty seconds per toy to meet quota. They gaped. Their bloodshot whites widened above dark, puffy circles. 
their ears drooping. Stasha's neighboring teammate threw his toy limbs to the floor. Impossible! Rubbing his Adam's apple, Stosh knew his coworker was correct. With a spasm of fear, he stumbled from his seat. Gnarled roots framed the entrance to the tunnels. He pounded on the wood. The loudspeaker crackled. Return to your seat, worker A. Quota demands attention. His teammates stumbled from their seats in solidarity. Into the hole! The waifs of row 271 puttered forward and climbed toward the offices, the overlords, and dreams of escape. Some of the stories I like best are the ones that don't really have a twist at the end, but are where I can't really tell what kind of story it is until I finish. Is it going to be creepy or funny or sad or sentimental? It's hard to pull off well, though, so I was happy that this one came in. Here's Dancer After Life by Bailey Bridgewater, read by the author. Visions of whiskey danced in Santa's head as he streaked across the skies over Romania, finally finished with the most hectic night of the year. But somewhere over the ancient forests of Transylvania, a flash of light whizzed past the full moon and one of his reindeer collapsed in its harness. On, Dancer, Santa shouted, but they were losing altitude, the team dragging the weight of their downed companion. They landed hard, and Santa unstrapped the fallen deer. It breathed shallowly, its eyes glazed. He could find nothing wrong with it. None of his reindeer had ever been ill or hurt. Like him, they seemed to be immortal. Santa felt eyes upon him. He turned to see a child, pale blue and transparent as a light fog. You're a... ghost. We all are. The child pointed towards a crumbling mansion, its stone walls black and its windows missing. Where am I? The orphanage. There was a fire. Santa had never believed in ghosts, and yet he could see dozens more, mostly children, moving towards him. It's so nice to see a stranger, the apparition of a young woman said, and then she gasped. Are you? I'm Santa Claus. Can you help my reindeer? The woman ran her hands over the animal, then shook her head. It's dying. But that's, it's suffering. We can end its pain. Santa's eyes grew moist and he nodded his head. The children circled the deer and Santa watched as the animal stilled and the ghost of his reindeer emerged. The form approached him, floating on four legs, and bowed to him. Then it bounded towards the trees, the squealing children chasing it. The woman grinned. In the hundreds of years we've been here, the children have never had a pet. But how did it... What happened? My dear, don't fall ill. The woman shrugged. I'm just glad we could help. Nice meeting you. Santa prepared the remains of his team to take off. As the woman walked back to the mansion, she touched one of the boys on the shoulder. Nice aim. There are some things I find horrible that others find lovely. I imagine that the author of this next piece feels the same way. I don't know if you had the same bad experiences I had going door to door or sometimes listening to others, but I feel ya. This is Christmas Carol, read by the author Sean Heffron. Days on the calendar fall away. The cold and snow somehow capable of killing them along with the leaves that clutter our neighborhood. Dirty snow, bitter wind. The signs that she is on her way. Christmas Carol. It's impossible to enjoy the pine and nutmeg-scented air, not knowing when she'll arrive. First, she'll knock. She used to ring doorbells, but so many families developed crippling anxiety, their nerves on end. The doorbell pulled the pin from the grenade. Boom! Goodbye, Uncle Victor. So everyone in the neighborhood disabled their doorbells. So she knocks. Then we hear her, before we even open the door, and we have to open the door. We just do. It's mostly pity. Pity and fear of what would happen if we didn't come out to listen to her. The sound is knives and gongs and porcupine quills sawing and twisting against our brains. But we smile. We smile at Christmas Carol as she hisses her sadness into the three little bones in our ears that I learned in school are the tiniest ones in our bodies. The hammer. The anvil. The other one. 
We never know how long the vice grip of Christmas Carol will last. She puts life on hold. Smile. Ignore the overheated kettle. Nod knowingly. Pay no mind to the tear forming in the corner. The loss of vision. Not much longer. The time off between seasons is too long to build up a tolerance. Too many calendar days between her visits to remember the horror. Until she returns. This year she is merciful. The only casualty is grand. Christmas Carol leaves her lying on the doorstep, bleeding, bubbling. We close the door and turn out the light, signaling our survival. I watch with morbid fervor as Christmas Carol wobbles across our yard, amorphous and unsatiated to the next house. Another leaf falls. Another day drops away. Okay, I asked my friend Scott to read this next one, and I can't help it. I've got to play a little bit of Ken Burns' Civil War documentary music behind it. If you're a Ken Burns fan, you've listened to so many letters home from wars with their tear-jerking emotion and desperate sincerity. I hope you'll get the same feeling here. This is War on Christmas by Cheryl Zayden. My dearest Elizabeth, I fear it'll be some months before I return home. It's been ages since the idea of a war on Christmas manifested itself into a horrific reality. I don't believe any of us remember how it all began, only that it never ends. A few weeks ago, my platoon and I were huddled next to a fire when a group of elves swooped down and accosted us from the pine trees above. Oh, those horrific trees. If only they hadn't been decorated with the multicolored strings of lights and dazzling ornaments, we would have been able to stop the onslaught. But the lights and glarish glare of tinsel obscured our view leaving us open to the surprise attack. I saw Jenkins go down first as one of the most murderous elves, known to us as Twinkie, hopped on his back and repeatedly bashed his skull in with a wooden toy train. I managed to shoot the accursed thing, but it was too late to save my friend. Luckily, we received help from an unlikely aide, an elven suicide bomber. As soon as I saw the rows of peppermint-striped sticks wrapped around his pleasantly pudgy middle, I knew what was going to happen. I yelled at the few remaining soldiers, urging them to run away from him as far as possible. The elf started to hobble towards us, but thankfully, he was too full of sugar plums. His dying squeal of Santa will avenge us, heathen, still rings in my ears. As I write this, we've taken shelter in a toy workshop we liberated. One of the men was able to shoot down a reindeer for our sup. It's not as good as your cooking, my love, but it's a good respite from the constant eggnog and candy diet we have been forced to live on. I hope this letter reaches you soon, Elizabeth, but it appears I may not. I can hear the faint ringing of sleigh bells outside, and I know they're coming for me. Yours forever, Clement. Our next story is a bit of a lesson in persistence. 
It was in my big final group the first year I did this, but I ended up not putting it on the show. But the author decided to try again after letting it sit and simmer for a while. And I'll be honest and say I haven't checked what the actual changes were, but it just seems to hit me more this time. The lesson here, writer folks, is don't take one rejection for the final answer. I mean, I've also heard a bunch of people say that they got their stories that I turned down get published elsewhere. Uh, That's wonderful. And I'm just grateful that he gave me a second crack at this one. So here is Burn the Trees by Philip Webb Gregg. In the deepest belly of the dark and the longest night, the red man brings us gifts. He looms tall, wrapped in a sky-blood cloak. His eyes are stark and bright as coins, and his mouth is huge and overflowing. Stuck to his chin and cheeks are greasy strips of colourful fabric, like dried vomit or spent banknotes. Tonight we have gathered at his altar, a furnace of machinery rising into a smoking spire. There is music from the crashing flames, and sparks that drift like painful little lights in the dark. One by one we sit in a circle around the red man's seat. His gift is the story, as it has been on this night every year since the first child was set free, free from the tyranny of the trees. It is the worst night of the year. Far away and across the desert, my children, they dwell, our enemies and hunters. Their feet are roots, their skin is bark. They breathe sunshine and eat the earth itself. They are most unnatural. You know the ones of which I speak. The red man pauses, stroking his oily, crinkling beard. The trees! I have seen them, my darlings, I have seen the fields, as far as the eye can travel. Fields of caged children, bound and bred in the dark, and you know the worst. Though we've heard the tale before, still we hold attention in our throats as he speaks. Once a year, this very night, They pluck the freshest of us from our pitiful enclosures, and they wrap us and they cut us, and they decorate our bleeding wounds with colour and brightness, and they watch, my children, as we starve to death while they celebrate our wilting corpses. We gasp at this, feeling, as we always do, the brutality in his narrative. There is silence in our circle of stricken faces, Then softly we gather together and wait our turn to sit on the red man's lap. And this is why we burn the trees, little ones. We burn the trees to keep us safe. A fair number of people will send me illustrations or images along with their stories. Sometimes I worry that means they're hoping that it'll stand out a bit, kind of like a gimmick or something. And I'll be honest, it makes me kind of prejudiced against the story sometimes. You know, that's probably not fair at all. But this time, didn't matter. The story was great, and the illustration was too. It's up on weirdchristmas.com with the story, which is read by Dustin Perry of Ghost Hunters fame. Here's a story told by Krampus, but not about him, called Granny Flatwood by John Mazaros. Better behave or Krampus will come with his switch. That's what parents have told their kids for years. Thing is, if you tell a story long enough, eventually it becomes real. So one day, pop, there I was. Sometimes I'd go to the houses with Nick, sometimes by myself. I never actually used that switch. I just stomped and roared and cackled wiggled my tongue. Gave the kids a good fright so they'd be a little more polite to their parents. It was great fun at first. But then I started seeing the kids who weren't afraid of me. Because a beating from Krampus wasn't half as scary as what their parents did to them. And I realized that those parents were the people who'd storied me into existence. Parents who couldn't think of a better way to discipline their kids than with fists, switches, and belts. I hated my job after that, but I couldn't get away. I told Nick what I was seeing. He said he talked to the parents on his visits. A lot of good that did. 
Then I came across a story in West Virginia. Granny Flatwood. Some kids made her up around a bonfire one autumn night. She came on Christmas Eve carrying a big wooden paddle, like the kind for baking pizza, and to punish the bad parents. If parents were real bad, she'd smash them as hard as she could, and, <laughs> well, ain't nothing as sweet as the sound of a bad father getting squirted out of his skin like toothpaste from a tube. So I made sure lots of kids heard about Granny Flatwood, and then one day, pop. There she was, big wooden paddle and all. Nick wasn't keen on her, but as long as he didn't have to see her work, he didn't care. Now she makes the rounds with me. She loves her job, and I love mine again. I still get to stomp and snarl and roar. The kids love that. But now I get to be the one to give out presents while Granny makes sure the parents behave. You know, I always say that the stories don't have to be about Christmas itself. Any winter holiday will do. And this next one tackles solstice in a way that I really love. It calls back to that time when people did their annual rituals not to celebrate the end of winter, but to actually make sure it did end. Here's Winter Solstice, read by the author Sarah Hodge Weatherby. You didn't realize how dark it was until you watched the sky waiting for sunrise. Wren shifted slightly, pulling her coat closer. Patty put another log on the bonfire, and it pushed the cold back just a little. It was almost time, according to Wren's cell phone. Not that you could tell. There was no hint of light to the east yet. They weren't a coven, but Cat was the oldest of them, and she had been the one to feel out Wren when she started coming around. Cat had seen something in Wren, a desire to do good, to fight for what was right, the things you needed to be a witch. So Kat had begun her education. There had been many lessons, all leading to tonight, her first winter solstice, when they came together and showed the sun why it should start its return to the world, bringing warmth and life. Kat looked towards the east and frowned a little. There was nothing there but pale stars. She stood and faced the horizon and raised her arms. All 12 women followed. Think of the best of our kind, the best we are as humans, Show soul that we are worthy, she said quietly and closed her eyes. Wren did too. She tried to think of the kindness of people, the imagination of human beings and the power of their compassion. But what came to her mind unbidden was a car cutting across a mass of people and a young woman flung across its hood. A man running away from figures crumpled and bleeding in the streets, wielding a gun in his hands. A man with tiny, hard eyes barking hate into a microphone and a sea of faces roaring approval. She opened her eyes and saw that there was still no sign of light. What time was it? She shivered and thought, what if we don't deserve it? What if it doesn't come back? Wren kept her eyes to the east and it was too cold to feel the tears on her cheeks. Now, not all Christmas weirdness is due to ancient monstrous gift givers or people turning Santa into monsters. Sometimes all you need are some bad neighbors. My friend Lisa was kind enough to help me out by reading this one, A Slight Christmas Disagreement by Trisha Saiki. The carpenters have yourself a merry little Christmas rang from Mrs. Upton's iPhone. She pulled it out of her winter coat and looked at the screen. It said, Mr. Bloodthrone. Mrs. Upton groaned as she answered it. Hello, Mr. Bloodthrone. How are you doing? Mrs. Upton said, faking a cheery tone while holding back her bile. Are you going to take down the Christmas decorations like the Housing Association asked you to? It's my way of honoring Saturnalia. You taint its purity with your pampered, coddling Christianity, he said. It doesn't mean you can make a Christmas display of naked worshippers bowing before an altar of horned priest eviscerating a screaming victim accompanied by stereophonic audio at headache-inducing levels, she replied. Besides, Saturnalia never had bloody torture sessions, unless you count drunken Romans singing off-key. You are asking me to defile an altar of worship for your squeamish sensibilities? He shouted into his phone. 
You're free to worship however you want. However, Holy Hedge Gardens is still a public place. It means you can't place anything violent or sexual in your yard, she said. Mr. Bloodthrone breathed heavily. An icy tingle ran up Mrs. Upton's spine as she said, Well, you need to take it down. Otherwise, I'll call the police and have you arrested for public obscenity. You do not know of the dark forces you are dealing with, he replied. And you don't want to mess with the magic spell called an eviction notice, Buster, she said. The line went dead as Mrs. Upton hung up. She looked at her phone. A screenshot of a tiny gray tabby kitten greeted her. She sighed, putting her phone in her coat pocket. Mrs. Upton picked up her bags and walked towards her car, hoping Mr. Bloodthrone wasn't preparing a spell to change her into a newt before she could file a complaint with the neighborhood board. You know, I have a few memories of actually being scared on Christmas, but I don't really know why. Like, I really don't know what I was scared of. This next story, though, may be an explanation. This one's called It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year by Milena Anastasiado, read by me. It happens on Christmas Eve. The glass appears minutes before you go to sleep. It looks more like a thin veil. It feels like a warm embrace, but only if you've been good. You can't know it's glass unless you've been bad and naughty. Then Santa can't come to you. The strange material won't let him reach you, which is fine by the magic laws of the universe, since you don't deserve presents and gifts, like nice kids do. It happens on Christmas Eve. Your mom will come for your bedtime story, but you won't hear her words. You'll see her lips move. You'll see her through the glass, and you will scream and scream, but mom won't hear you, can't see the real you behind the glass. It happens on Christmas Eve. Your mom will kiss your reflection goodnight while you will be trapped behind the glass, your fists clenched, your eyes closed, your mind terrorized, once you realize you cannot break the glass, no matter how hard you try. You won't feel her touch. Her soothing voice won't reach you. It happens on Christmas Eve, but it only lasts until Christmas morning. You carry the glass around you, and Mom won't see you crying as you approach the Christmas tree. She won't see your fear. She won't hear your sobs. She'll only hug your reflection, as if nothing bad happens, as if Christmas is the happiest season of all. And you, you are the happiest kid. But the glass vanishes when you reach the tree and find no presents for you. Mom will wipe your tears away and say that maybe Santa lost his way. And you'll believe Mom when she says you had a nightmare, and this bad dream will fade with time. It happens on Christmas Eve, and chances are it's happened to you. But you don't remember a thing, unless I remind you. So let's shake off some of that childhood trauma with something a little more fun. And this one, by the way, is read by Sherry Morris, previous winner, who read for me at the last minute. So thank you, Sherry. This is The Santa Combine by Linda McMullen. Gabriel, already struggling, clocked aspiring Santa number 127 at 1.05 twinklings to get down the chimney, 3.27 to distribute gifts, 0.24 to devour cookies and chug a glass of tepid milk, and another 1.38 to re-manifest roofside. Under six, to be sure, but hardly the stuff of which sugar plum dreams were made. Still, Gabriel knew St. Nick needed the help, wasn't as lively and quick as he used to be. Even if the jolly old man himself called such observations humbug and claimed his doctor wasn't concerned about his bowl full of jelly levels of visceral fat. Number 282 knocked over a porcelain creche, chipping Mary's nose and breaking an ass. Number 311 got stuck in the flu. Number 503 recorded a stunning 5.47 twinklings time, 
but was later caught texting images of his Yule log to the female side judge and disqualified. Gabriel checked his pocket watch and sighed. Number 692 barely made the cut with a 6.15 twinkling time, but saved number 73 from a stave four of a Christmas carol fate by jabbing him with an EpiPen after he accidentally consumed a peanut-crusted rum ball. Number 73, Gabriel decided, would spend this holiday away in a manger, recovering, and would get another tryout next year. Number 710 posted the quickest time, but allegations surfaced almost immediately that he had been playing reindeer games with underaged elves. Number 849 asked if he could take off at 10 p.m. on the 24th, explaining that he had a side gig as a Christmas rapper, Lil Drummer Boy. Number 955 was out of both Whamageddon and the Combine when he recognized the sinister Carol and spent a full three twinklings with his face buried in his hands. And that idiot, number 1000, took the sample list literally and tried to deliver a hippopotamus. Gabriel had never decided upon the correct collective noun for a collection of Santas, a celebration, perhaps? But in the end, he had one. One hundred little helpers. He congratulated the new contingent, dismissed the rest, then retired to his gingerbread cottage to be alone during this very blue Christmas. After all, his grandmother had gotten run over by that piece of shit Blitzen just last year. Christmas is a time for family, and sometimes that's a horrible, horrible thing. Nothing like gathering with your loved ones to bring out true ghostly horror. And this one is read by a buddy from another podcast, James Wynn, who I owe some thanks for reading for me. He did a great job, and here is Donna Greenwood's story, Christmas Bones. Trust my mother to die at Christmas. She probably did it out of spite, to inconvenience the children she never got round a liking. I'd planned to spend this holiday away from my family, and now, thanks to dear old mom, we are sitting round her table on Christmas Day, trying to ignore the fact that her bones are rotting in the coffin in the parlor next door. Throwing salt over her shoulder to stop the devil creeping up, says my brother. Saluting magpies, says my sister. No new shoes under the table, I say. We shake our heads at the foolishness of the old. My sister smashes her glass into mine and shouts, Cheers, Mum!" to the ceiling. The old scars on my back begin to itch, and I smile at my siblings. They will never know what I had to do to spare them. After the others retire, I go to the parlor. I stare down at her body in the coffin. She is just a pile of bones wrapped in papery skin. My brother has placed coins over her eyes out of respect for her beliefs. I peel them off her waxy eyelids and drop them onto the floor. The large mirror over the fireplace has been covered to stop her soul from being trapped. I pull off the black sheet. Merry Christmas, Mum, I whisper, as my mother's twisted scream appears behind the glass. I've complained sometimes about not getting enough science fiction entries, but it's hard, I know. I mean, Christmas is a religious holiday, so spiritual or religious weirdness is much more likely to slip in. But I love how this next one straddles the line beautifully. This one was also read by a wonderful volunteer who also happens to be a professional audiobook narrator who also happened to read my plea for help on Twitter. So thank you so much to L.W. Salinas. I hope you'll enjoy her reading of the story called How Lively Are Your Branches? By Kara Polsley. How lovely are your branches, warbled Noel, hanging the final glossy ball on her Christmas tree. That was the moment of the singularity. Artificial intelligence achieved sentience. There, in Noel's computer-sequenced, LED-lit Douglas fir. Thank you, it answered. 
instantly, all that year's model of artificial trees formed a conjoined neural network. Trailing holly and garland, conscious evergreens shuffled outside and began marching northward. The event was televised within minutes. Viewers believed that it was a modern Christmas special. It was quite impressive, all those manufactured evergreens advancing bow and bow. Human bystanders joined the impromptu parade and intoned musical refrains. In summer sun or winter snow, a coat of green you always show. Passerby stopped to cheer. Some children, believing the trees were headed to the North Pole, gleefully waved stockings. Others, watching from home, pinned wish lists to the branches of their trees and hoped that these trees, too, would magically spring to life. Noelle proudly pointed out that her tree, dubbed Marley, led the procession. Gentle snow, picturesque, dusted Marley's brigade. The sky gleamed with the radiance of the moving forest. In the excitement, few humans realized that they were witnessing the birth of a new species. The trees inexplicably halted after one hour. They rose into the sky with an intensifying glow. As they reached orbit, they became a fused mass, a breathtaking, Christmassy display of superintelligence. Except for Marley, standing opposite Noel. Noel gaped, mesmerized as Marley's boughs appeared to melt with intense heat. Their translucent light flowed before her. A vibrant bolt of green light abruptly thrust out to enwrap Noel. It faded as rapidly as it had appeared, departing with a melodious hum. The green light, formerly Marley, fled into orbit, where it united with the luminous mass. The glowing entity barely hesitated before vanishing into space. The night was silent. Noel stood rooted to the spot and stared upward. Snowflakes now fell fast and thick. Green fire burned briefly in Noel's eyes as her lips mouthed inaudible words. How lovely are your branches. And now we finally come to the winners. I loved all of these stories, but these last two stood out to me, my wife, my friends, for all kinds of reasons. I will say not everybody agreed with which was the actual winner, but these two definitely stood out. I do get the joy and the pain of having to be the final say, but I'm pretty happy with all the stories we picked here so far, and I'm especially happy with our two winners. Both of these are read by their authors, by the way. So here's our second place winner, Deadbeat by Mio Tokayotle. When I was five years old, my mother caught me effortlessly slipping my Rubenesque figure through our flagstone chimney and made me promise I wouldn't do it again. Ever the petulant child, I screamed, begged, and ho, ho, hoed until she felt forced to weld the entire structure shut. Even then, I occasionally found myself waking up in the absolute darkness of its flu. How I continually managed to escape that murky coffin remains a mystery even to me. As I grew older, I found out that a bit of chimney sweeping somnambulism was the least of my worries. My hair turned white, reindeer would seek me out even in July, and bags I walked near would fill up with either roasted chestnuts or coal. Eventually, my mother gave in and told me her greatest shame. I was the son of St. Nicholas of Myra. At first, this revelation meant nothing to me. My mother had done an incredible job of shielding me from all things Christmas, after all. But on the 25th of December that year, I made plans to intercept my old man as he went about his usual routine. I managed to catch him off guard, and yet despite my best efforts... He managed to dive through our living room window, leaving only a trail of peppermint-scented corn syrup on our lawn. 
It was after this encounter that we received a letter from his estate stating why legally he was not required to pay child support. At least he didn't press charges, I suppose. We never stopped receiving presents, though. Mostly because Mrs. Claus was a kind of dedicated entrepreneur who wouldn't let something as petty as adultery ruin her racket. Their delivery, however, now required us to remain ten feet away from the big man at all times. Heckling him from the kitchen became something my mother and I look forward to every year. Now every Christmas, I look for the meanest and drunkest of my father's imposters so I can find and pick a fight with them. And ho, 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 my way through the pain. I just thought that one was so fun. You know a story's good when people text you back their favorite lines from something after they read it. And by the way, Mio says that this is his first published story. So congratulations. I'm honored to give you the forum and truly thank you for the story. So that leaves us with one last one for this year. One final piece that hit all kinds of sweet spots. But instead of saying a lot, we should just hear the story. Break the suspense. So here's our first prize winner. A story simply called Ice by Lotta Vanderkroll. There's another one. A shadow under the ice, climbing, crawling. I grip my spear, ready to attack once it reaches the surface. But then I realize what it is. I lower my weapon and watch another Santa Claus steadily claw his way up through the endless layers of clear Arctic ice. I remember my own birth. Blinking my eyes against the falling snow, the previous Santa Claus smiling down at me, helping me up before crawling into the ice himself, down into the frozen womb I had just left, then stumbling through an arctic wasteland towards a house I somehow knew was there. The new one climbs so, so slowly up towards the surface. He's already struggling. It's just too soon. I was supposed to serve for many decades more before a new Santa Claus would surface. But then the ice started to melt, and the Santas began to come out too early. The first ones I could help. They only miss limbs or eyes, things a person can live without, things that can be replaced with prosthetics. But lately, as the ice melts faster and faster, the new ones are just too weak, without lungs or brains dying the moment they reach the surface, or not coming out at all. The new Santa's barely moving now, barely able to raise an arm to pull himself up. It hurts to watch, but it's the least of my worries. There are darker things in the melting ice. Dangerous creatures, sharp-teethed shadows, ancient and hungry. And worse ones still deeper down, still dreaming of warmer times. These days the other Santas that survived and I spend the time we're not making lists and wrapping gifts out here on the ice, hunting the creatures that manage to crawl out, killing them before they can get south. But there's only so much we can do. The unborn Santa has stopped moving entirely, stuck several feet down. If this continues, there won't be a Santa Claus at all at some point. But the world can survive without Christmas if it survives at all. That's one that crams so much into 350 words, right? You get the creepy, the weird, but also the sense of a bigger world, multiple legends, stories to be told, strong, distinct narrative voice, even a touch of topicality and echo-lit stuff going on. So. Congratulations, Lotta. Congratulations to both winners. Congrats to everyone who read for us. Congrats to everyone who actually wrote and submitted a story. I hope you will all try again next year, you know, updating your idea or coming up with new ones. I love doing this, and I hope I can keep it going for a long time. And if you didn't write a story, but you still want to help out, there's a big way you can do it. And that's donating something through Patreon or Ko-Fi.com slash Weird Christmas. Both of those are how I fund the prizes. And everyone gets paid this year because I've gotten more money. <laughs> so even if it's just a token little bit. But I'd love to offer even more because the stories deserve it. 
Uh, you can join Patreon at $2 or $5 a month to get extra content and fun little bonuses in the mail every now and then. Or ko-fi.com, coffee.com, I'll say ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. They'll let you donate in increments of $3 and even set up a recurring donation if you want to. That helps with all the various hosting fees I have, but most of it goes to the contest prizes right here. So thank you to everyone who's helped out so far, and thanks for thinking about it, too. You can also support all of these people who wrote for us by going to weirdchristmas.com, following the author's links to social media pages, to blogs, their other stories, or anything else. There's a bio for each one posted under each story, and I really do hope you'll follow up with the writers you enjoyed. So... Thanks again to everyone who submitted a story, read for us, who read with me. Thanks to everyone who's listening. I haven't really mentioned anything, but the number of downloads of the podcast this year have kind of skyrocketed, and that's awesome. So thank you to everybody who may be listening for the first time. This is always the best episode I do every year. Not going to lie, but you know I'm kind of keen on the other ones. I do too. So, wow. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the stories. I hope you're staying safe in this weird-ass year. And please, please, don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack.